my dad was a Vietnam veteran, and he he actually didn't complete high school. Um, very, I mean, for whatever reasons, he's not here today to tell, explain it, but I know he tried to go into the Marine Corps early <clears throat> in 60-something, and um, they, it was like the spring of 1960-something, he wanted to go join the Marines. I think he had to wait a few weeks in San Diego till he passed his birthday of whatever it was, 17 or 18, okay? He was 17, and they took him, but they said, you're going to have to wait a few weeks over here, and when you turn 18, you can go ahead and start boot camp. And so he did and went through boot camp, and, and then pretty soon he was in Vietnam for a certain length of time, and he didn't uh, himself exert combat. He was near it, and then um, some of you would remember some of this. The Vietnam War was controversial, and uh, uh, whether we should have done it or not and all that, um, but... The Marines and soldiers and sailors, they just did their job. They're signing up and going where the government sends them. <clears throat> and so Dad did that, and he came back, and, and he, he said that, I think it was at an airport coming back, maybe in California, uh, he saw something that was common where people are protesting them as they come back. They're protesting the soldiers, Marines, sailors, some airmen pro probably, and, um, yeah, you know, saying derogatory things to them as they're coming through the airport or whatever. And Dad said he saw a little bit of that. It didn't really bother him. But I know they were, there were some who were very coarse and cool to some of our soldiers, you know, spitting in their face, baby killers and all this stuff, and just, um, uh, you know, rejecting them. And whether that the war was justified or not, it didn't seem appropriate to reject somebody who's doing their duty like that. And you see something like this with Moses. In fact, by the way, backing up, some of those soldiers and Marines were also hated by the countrymen that they went to help. Um, they're hated by the countrymen they went to help. They're hated by the countrymen they come back to that they belong to. Moses felt that in this passage. He was actually experiencing a moment, you'll see, where his Hebrews, he's a Hebrew, reject him, and the Egyptian, particularly the Pharaoh, is trying to kill him, and everybody's basically rejecting him. And we're going to learn how, do we have the slide here, Yannick? We're going to learn basically how Moses responds to personal rejection, okay? But let's read the whole chapter. Be patient here. Try to follow along the best you can. We're reading about when Moses was a baby, there was a mandate, there was a law that said you need to kill the baby boys, and his parents uh, say, no, nah, we're not doing that, we're going to obey God rather than man. And so notice this, chapter 2, verse 1, follow along here. There went out a man of the house, and there went out a man of the house of Levi and took a wife, a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein. And she laid it in the flags by the river's, by the river's brink. And his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. 
When she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. She had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses. And she said, Because I drew him out of the water. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian smiting in Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way, and when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killedest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. And when, now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the, the troughs to the water troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, How is it that ye are come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and also drew water enough for us and watered the flock. And he said unto his daughters, And where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses Zipporah his daughter, and she bare him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Uh, hey, uh, Yannick, if we're having problems with it, let's just go ahead and turn it off. All right. <clears throat> All right, so in Exodus chapter 2, we're talking about the life of Moses, as I said, and about um, rejection, about him being uh, pushed away, thrust away, about him being... Um, uh, dismissed as illegitimate to some people, and it happened more than once. Um, have you ever? Now, I'm not. By the way, I'm not trying to create this victim mood. Okay, in this series, like, oh, we're all just victims and we're hopeless. I'm not. I'm actually trying to help us to crawl out of that that might already be. Okay, or preempt times where it's like, man, I'm just. Uh, 
I'm just hurting or I can't get over this thing of somebody thrusting me away or somebody, I'm not good enough for somebody. And those are real feelings and real struggles. So we're not trying to just loathe in our victimhood. We're trying to recognize it and move beyond it. Okay? That's what we're trying to do. We're supposed to be more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Not conquerors. More than conquerors. Okay. And so uh, there's different things. I remember as a kid... I had a hard time getting cut from a ball team. Man, I liked sports. I tried out for ninth. I played some baseball and I played some football and I did a little bit of wrestling. But I remember ninth, this is embarrassing to tell you, ninth grade, Taylor Junior High, and 10th grade, Mesa High, I got cut from baseball team both times. I didn't make it. I didn't make the cut. Now, I have a conspiracy theory as to why, because there was a large religion that dominated that school. And some of those guys were not even as good as me somehow made it. But anyways... That's my conspiracy, uh, and I wasn't one of them. So anyways, it was hard the ninth grade year. Oh, man, I got cut. Tenth grade year, I'm going to try out Mesa High. Yeah, and I tried hard, and I, I man, I remember. I'm like, and, and sure enough, you show up after the first week of tryouts, or I don't know if it was second week, and you look on the window of the, the coach's office, and he posts the guys. If your name is on there, you stay. If your name's not there, you're cut. And I'm looking for my name, and my name's not on there, and I got cut that second time. And it's kind of hard dealing with that, you know? That was, that was real feelings for me as a 10th grader. Like, man, so God worked that together for good. It meant I spent more time working with my dad at the shop, which I was already starting to do. And in hindsight, it helped me have a, a little better relationship with my dad. I didn't have the closest one. It wasn't like there was hostility. I just wasn't that close. And it helped God work that together for good to cause me to be a little closer to my dad and know him and understand him better and refine my skill in paint and body work, which was at the time. But, you know, it's hard dealing with that type of rejection. There's other kinds that people uh, deal with, maybe um, with really things, even something that can have deep scars where a child from a parent, you know, a parent ridicules their own child or abuses their own child, and they feel like, I'm trash, I'm worth it. That's, that's tough stuff. That's tough stuff. Or maybe sometimes, um, uh, maybe a person, a spouse feel it from their other spouse. I'm never good enough, or I can never be perfect. Or, that is tough stuff. That's hard. And so sometimes we have to come back to the Bible. Is there some, is there some insight there? We'll try to get some insight on that. Um, about, uh, or, or people even doing, like Moses is really trying to help. He's coming in, and he's trying to help the Hebrews, and he's trying to be deliverer and he is kicked back you know kicked away we're going to see that sometimes people that try to do christian ministry like i'm going to teach i'm going to teach a class or i'm going to teach some people or i'm going to teach some ladies and then you prepare do all this preparation and people don't show up or something like that you start feeling like man am i not good enough you know or you or you do witnessing you witness to somebody and this commonly happens and happened in the new testament and um but people, you know, reject you after rejection, after rejection, after rejection, and kind of get to you. The apostles in the New Testament had an interesting take on it. They just went away like, yes, we get to feel what Jesus felt, rejoicing because they're reproached for Christ. That means because they were thinking, we're going to get some extra gold in heaven for that one, you know, an extra crown. They realized that God rewards uh, people that are persecuted not for their stupidity's sake, but persecuted for righteousness' sake and for the sake of the gospel. And so that's how they process it. But still, sometimes, like, why? You know, it's not fun being rejected. 
How many of you guys like to play basketball and shoot it and also, boom, somebody slap that away and get in your face and go, Ugh, you know? How many of you like that? Not to do it, to have it happen. Anybody like to be rejected in basketball? See, how many of you like to reject somebody in basketball? Liars, come on, everybody does, you know? Just, boom. You almost want, to, I know some big brothers in here, they want to play with their little brother just so that they can get the uh, satisfaction. Go ahead and shoot it. Go ahead and shoot it. Go ahead and shoot it. You know, that's what we get like. We just get that. We want to be that. But it's not fun of being on the receptive end of that. Like, oh, you know, on relationship things or on work, maybe you did something at work, you, a project you had to do, and, it, and it, it, all this work, and you hand it in or you turn it in or you produce it, and it's just not good enough for the customer or for the manager. And you got to, that's when it's like, I just got to have some tenacity. I got to have some perseverance. But, you know, there's things, there's just not fun to deal with that. Um, there's sometimes we've had in our, my dad and I shop, there was times we had a highly perfectionist customers where they really, really, really picky. You're going, oh my goodness, I just can't be good enough. And, um, but that happens. Um, so Moses has this, Moses's life, if we think about his life, let's back up a little bit. We talked about in chapter one about his people, the Hebrews were his people, his race, his ethnicity. They came years before and they migrated. Just It was only 70 of them at the time, not counting Joseph. They migrated into Egypt, Israel, and his kids, his grandkids, daughter-in-laws. And they were there because it was of God's providence. There was a famine in the land. They were there and they survived. And Joseph, the brother who was, <clears throat> who was rejected himself, this is a common theme in the Bible, now God used that rejection to put him in a place of vice presidency, basically, in Egypt. And now he's, he's coordinating the survival of Egypt. And lo and behold, his family's coming in here. And he's coordinating them being able to live in a special area of the land. And he's, he's, he's in charge of the economic stability, making sure that as when they had previously seven really good years of crops, that it, he wisely saved it. That's a good financial principle. If you're doing really good right now, just start doing like Joseph said it was about 20% away. Just keep setting 20% away because uh, economies are cyclical. And so Joseph did that. Here's the wise thing to do. And he stored up these grain houses and all that. And pretty soon the whole world was depending on them. The whole world was coming to Joseph to be fed. That's a picture of Jesus. We're not going to survive the famine of, 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 of standing before God. We have nothing <laughs> to survive before God unless we're depending on Jesus Christ. And so Joseph is there, and, and his family's there, and, and Joseph has favor with Pharaoh, which by extension should mean favor with the people by and large. But over the years, as years passed, there was a different dynasty that comes in, a new Pharaoh. And of course, Joseph and those first few, uh, that first generation of people, they had died. And there's this new Pharaoh, and it's again, this is Egypt, this is the Egyptians' land, and you have all the Hebrews there. And he says, I don't know these people. Who are these really, these people? He says they didn't know Joseph. That is, it, the idea is there was no favor there that was naturally um, had toward these, this other ethnicity in their land. And he sees them, and he sees them growing and multiplying. And last week, we learned the idea of racial rejection and the danger there is in that. And we learned some things about racism to avoid. And so he gets, and he says, I don't know these people. Ignorance spurns racism. And he goes, look at them. They're multiplying. They're going to take us over. 
And then he begins to do cruel things to them, like make them slaves. And then he begins to do, and the more he made them slaves, God was showing that his hand was on them. Even though he was putting them in slave, the Hebrews, and they were still multiplying and multiplying. Lots of kids being born, lots of babies. And they're successful even in whatever they're doing. They're, they're multiplied and become uh, whatever their hand was doing. And so Pharaoh says, all right, that's it. We're going to start practicing some eugenics and killing some of them, but not all of them. So he tells the midwives, you need to kill the baby boys when they're born. Let the girls live. And they didn't do it. They obey God rather than man. We're not going to obey an unlawful law. So they disobey the law when the law is against God's law. That's how we should be. Okay, we don't, we're not looking to disobey everybody's law, but if it's the law that knocks right. against God's law, well, there's, no, there's not a question. We always obey God rather than man. And that's what these midwives do. And then we come into this chapter where it's like, oh, it even comes down into Moses' family. And it describes Moses' dad and Moses' mom from the family of Levi. They're married and they have a child. We find out this is the third child. He already had an older brother, older sister. And the baby is a good-looking kid. And they said, we're going to keep this boy. We're not going to kill this boy. And we're going to keep him. We're going to keep him. We're not going to let this boy die. And so Moses is a little baby. Now, through this, Moses is being exempt from... You're going to see that he's going to get an exemption from what all of his other people felt. Slavery, kind of a racism attitude. He, so the mom's trying to keep him, and here's how it went. She's, she's like, man, he's, he's three months old. He's getting loud. He cries loud. You know, I can't keep it quiet anymore. So she makes this little boat, you know, make, put, puts together her little boat uh, and uh, her little ark, and she puts him in it and says, well, just going to put him out there and see happens on the river and of course he goes out and he's out he's floating down the river and she backs off and and nosy big sister Miriam good thing she was nosy you know she, I want to see baby brother you know and he's floating down and lo and behold Pharaoh's daughter and her entourage come around and they they see that and Pharaoh's daughter says go to one of her maidens go check out that little that little ark what is that bring it over and they the maiden Pharaoh's daughter uh, maiden brought, brings it over and shows it to Pharaoh's daughter and Pharaoh's daughter sees the poor little quivering crying baby Moses crying like this and you know and she goes oh the big old eyes thing and all the maidens go ah you know ah, all that you know how they do that and she had compassion the Bible does say she had compassion on the baby but so one of the babies of the Hebrews you know, and she takes them, and, and this is all awesome. The, the whole thing here is God, it's showing God's coordinating this whole deal. Pharaoh can't kill them. He thinks he's going to put down their population. They keep multiplying. It's amazing. So, he, so, so lo and behold, the sister, uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter, do you, do you want me to go get a, a Hebrew nurse to nurse the baby? You know, because it was probably unlikely that an Egyptian would just start breastfeeding, or this one, the Pharaoh's daughter. She said, that's a great idea. Why don't you go grab one of the Hebrew Because they had this mentality of, these are my little servants. I'm going to bring in a servant to just take care of this baby and nurse this baby. That's a great, okay. Miriam, big sister, she doesn't know this is big sister. Miriam, big sister, goes and sees mom, Jochebed, and uh, brings her over. And, and here's, 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 a, here's a, a Hebrew uh, nurse who can nurse this baby you found. And Mrs. Pharaoh's daughter says, that's a great idea. I'll pay you for it. I'll give you your wages, nurse the baby, and just bring it back to me. What a deal! 
Huh? You give your baby up. Oh, I'm not going to see him again. I'm not going to see him again. Mom, mom, you need to breastfeed the baby for Pharaoh's daughter. What? <laughs> you know, just don't tell her who you are. So, so anyway, she gets, mom gets the baby back. Gets to take him for a little while, bonding a little more, you know. I don't know how long, but the Bible says she, she does that. Look what it says there. Um, verse, uh, verse 8, the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, this is to Moses' mom, not knowing, if, I, if we understand right, that it was Moses' mom. The maid went and, uh, the maid, this is, I'm sorry, Moses' sister, the maid went and called the child's mother. Verse 9, Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Moses' mother, take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. Wouldn't that be nice, lady? Somebody pay you. You know, you would do it anyways, I understand. But here she is getting paid to nurse her little guy. The woman took the child and nursed it, verse 9 says. So, verse 10. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, and she said, because I drew him out of the water. Now, I mean, I don't know the years. It could have been... I don't know. Could have been several years. I'm not sure. But Jochebed, Moses' mother, gets to nurse him and wean him. But she has to give him up to Pharaoh's daughter, and she does. And now this guy, all of his people are in the slave class. All of his people are looked down on. He gets the exemption. Now he's brought up in the palace. Moses is brought up in the palace. And so he gets the finest Egyptian food, the finest Egyptian cotton, isn't that a thing? He's got the Egyptian linen, cotton, and all that, and the finest Egyptian uh, haircuts, and um, bracelets, and clothing, and sandals, and chariot, and I mean, up until about age 40, we're going to see him again, and he is brought up in that elite place. Oh, and the finest Egyptian learning. The Bible says he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, he was, high, he was well educated. For, for, the, for, for the status of a typical Egyptian, he was as good or better. He was kind of the Harvard trained for his day, all right, and for his country. And so that's how Moses was brought up. He was brought up, and he was called, Oh, you're Pharaoh's daughter, which means your, your grandpa, step or uh, foster grandpa, is Pharaoh. And mom is Pharaoh's daughter. And so it's a, it's a, he's brought up in this royal family in a way. But he's not one of them. And they probably knew. And it probably became a word, at least in that area, that, yeah, this is just a Hebrew. Perhaps it was a little different look. But uh, there he is, brought up in it. Privileged. But the Bible says that he, he makes a decision here. And the scriptures talk about this in another, another part where he decides he's going to identify with God's people. But it doesn't go as well as he thought. Verse 11, it says, And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown. Acts chapter 7 tells us it's 40 years old. Now, he lived to be 120, so it would be like saying for us to relate a 25 to 30-year-old guy. When Moses was grown, age 40, according to Acts 7, that he went out unto his brethren... So he leaves the palace. He's going to do a survey of who he knows is ethnically his people and even religiously. 
And he looked on their burdens, verse 11 says. Now, when he says their burdens, it wasn't like their backpacks coming home from school. It was like they were making brick and carrying brick and hauling stuff and getting messy and having whips on them from the Egyptians. And uh, just heavy, heavy, heavy work. Hot. Uh, you know, the unions would not approve. And uh, the laws of, you know, reasonable work environment would not go well. He looks and sees those are the people, perhaps some of my family out there. They're heavy, under burden. And then furthermore, verse 11 says, he spied an Egyptian, smiting an Hebrew, one of his brethren. So as he's looking at all this stuff happening, he sees over in some area, which is probably a little more secluded, he sees there's an Egyptian just abusing a Hebrew, and his heart is moved, and, he, and, and there's outrage within. By the way, we should, be, we should be outraged at injustice. It should bother us. It should. And he sees this, this Egyptian smiting an Hebrew, one of his brethren. Now, I'm going to stop a second. I'm going to take a quick peek at Acts 7. You don't have to go there. The language in Acts 7, when Stephen preaches this, he says that, this man was suffering wrong, verse 24 of Acts 7, and that he was being oppressed. This Hebrew was suffering wrong. He was being oppressed. In other words, this Egyptian over there beating on this Hebrew, it wasn't justified. It was not appropriate. It's not like, well, he had committed a crime and he's doing an on-the-spot punishment. No, it was just, just outright abuse. And Moses is like, mm. now Moses had this thing and through his life, where he could, he seemed really mellow and meek. But man, boom, snap. And some of us are like that. Some of us guys are like, we're cool, and then we can snap. He's like, he snapped, and he snapped probably a neck too. And uh, so he goes after this, he looks this way, that way, okay, did nobody see it? And he grabs the Egyptian, and he, he kills him. And he delivers the Hebrew. He kills this Egyptian buries him in the sand, and goes his way. And so the next thing you know, back at Hebrew, pardon me, back in Exodus, he thought, well, I'm going to help out again. Verse 13, it says he went out the second day. Okay, the next day, he's going to do another survey, looking on the Hebrews, what's going on out here? How are the Egyptians, these people I was grown up with, what are they treating them like? And now this time he doesn't see a problem with the Egyptians, to the Hebrews, he sees a problem. This is common. Hebrews to Hebrews. These guys are fussing and fighting over there. Look at that. This guy and this guy fussing and fighting. It says, he sees, verse 13, two of the men of the Hebrews strove together. They're fighting together. And he said to him that did the wrong, wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? So he could already discern one of them was right, one of them was wrong, but they're both fighting. And he comes over and he's like, hey, how come you're beating them up? And, and again, I'm going to take a quick peek at the book of Acts. The book of Acts, Stephen's commentary is that he saw, uh, verse uh, 26, it says of Acts 7, that Moses sees the next day, he showed himself unto them as they strove, as they fought. And, he, and when he would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do you do why do you wrong one another? Then he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Notice how it says in, in Exodus 2 
Moses, again, is intervening in this Hebrew fight. And he goes to the guy who did the wrong. And the guy who did the wrong, again, verse, the way it's said in Exodus, verse 14, he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killedest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. So he's going to enter. Hey, stop it, man. What are you doing to that guy? He goes, who do you think you are, prince? You think you're, you think you're going to start ruling us? They probably knew that he was the guy brought up in Pharaoh's household with the silver Egyptian spoon in his mouth. Who do you think you are now? Can float down here and help us all? Think you're going to boss me around? You're going to kill me like you killed? We saw that. We saw you kill the Egyptian the other day. That's where there's a hint that that was an over, overkill, literally, on that act of uh, intervention. He says, yeah, you're going to... And so, and so Moses is like, uh-oh, this is where the music and the movie changes, you know? Like, this, this is changing everything. And so, ooh, they know, people know. It's spreading, the Hebrews, they gossiping around, you know? And it's spreading around. And he's like, he backs off. Because here's the thought. He thought, Hebrews, or Acts 7 says that he supposed by doing this that they, this is his thinking, he thought they would understand, oh, finally somebody's come here to help us. We need help. Thanks for going and helping our domestic disputes. Let's move on now to the political one with Egypt. He thought they would have been thinking that way. They weren't thinking that way. They're like, get out of here. And so now he's backing off. They don't want me. I didn't like what the Egyptian was doing over there. And he's backing off, and pretty soon he goes quick to Pharaoh. Now the next thing he knows, Pharaoh wants to kill you. There's a bounty. And now, nobody wants him. If he could find his mom, she might, if she's alive. But nobody really wants him. And he is rejected by everybody. Next thing you know, he is run away, and he's sitting down by a well by himself. And that's sometimes what happens. You feel like everybody's boom, 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 boom. You're like, oh, I'm, I have work, and I, I have nowhere to go. And that's what he's doing. How does he respond? How do, you, how do people, how do you respond when you're rejected? Whether it's something small or something big, how do you respond? Fight, flight, bitter, better. There's different ways. And that's what we want to learn. I, I see three kind of points of insight here for the rest of our time on learning how Moses responded to this act. Sometimes it makes you feel too, when some people like, this is how people do that to you, you feel like, man, I'm worthless. People think I am. I'm lonely because I can't be around anybody. They're going to say something again. Um, and it makes you just feel junky. Well, how does, what, how, what insight can we learn from this moment? Because we're going to keep going through the text here. The first thing I see is the, he, he has to realize, and this is what we should realize. Number one, we should realize that, you know, to be real practical, not everybody's ready for you. Not everybody's ready for you or your help, right? Whether it's right or wrong, not everybody's ready for you to help them. And so they might be like, Moses was ready. Look, these two Hebrews fighting. We're going to help them out. Morty helping them out, delivering them from the Egyptians to follow me. He goes in to help them. He supposed they would have understood. Yes! And they're like, forget it. No, wait a second. Let's stop a second. 
Who were these Hebrews that he's doing? Who are they? They're slaves, right? He's trying to help slaves. You think, well, thank you. We need looking for somebody to help. It's a good thing we have somebody, a representative in the administration to help negotiate this. They don't. You're like, they should have. They should have put aside the fact that he was brought up in Pharaoh's house. They should have looked at it as like, well, maybe this is an advantage. Please help us. They weren't ready, though. He supposed they would be. They weren't ready. Did you know? It ne- okay, so right here, is, he's age 40. Um, by chapter 3, we learn he's, uh, he's about age 80. In between then, they finally, so for some several years, the Hebrew people who are slaves, it doesn't record that they cried to God yet. Look what it says. It's finally towards after Moses is gone, verse 23, it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Here's what I'm trying. I'm trying to show you a moment of timing. Moses is trying to help. They weren't even asking God for help yet. They reject Moses. They reject him. And then later, as years pass, so many years that this Pharaoh's gone, then it says they go, oh, God, would you help us? Now they want help. Did you see that? It's hard to help somebody that doesn't want help, right? We're called to preach the gospel to people who don't realize they're sinners or they need to be saved. And there's ways of showing them that, like show the law and different things like that. But at the end of the day, a person's like, I don't think I'm, I'm good. And I try to convince, I try to, you, can't, you can't save a person who doesn't think they're lost. You can't help a person get saved that doesn't think they're lost. And Moses can't deliver people who don't think they need to be delivered. Or even if they do, this is another thing. Even if they thought we'd be nice to be delivered, but we're just too proud to let you do it. People sometimes are not ready for my intervention or my help because maybe they're proud or they just don't think they need help. And so, like, get out of here, get away, you know? And so, um, I remember there was a guy, I told this before, there was a guy named Bill who used to come to church here. He actually didn't come. He just attended a little bit. His kids came here. And I remember, because we used to have, we didn't have that large overflow section a long time ago, you know? (laughs) We used to be like this. And I remember preaching a few times and seeing Bill come and sit right there by the the door, right by the window there at the back, because our our seating would be facing like that. And Bill's uh, three grandsons would come. And Roland Rogers, one of the men in our church, would often pick them up. He'd had a little route in a neighborhood in Chandler. He'd knock doors and then follow up on Sundays or on Saturday mornings to make sure the kids were coming the next day. And he had this one family of these three boys that would come, and there was other kids, and he'd pick them up. But the grandpa lived at the house. And uh, so Roland Rogers would actually talk to the, the, the grandsons, the mother, and then the grandpa, Bill. And Grandpa Bill, he kind of... Um, 
he kind of reminds me, this is really silly for me to say, but like I was watching one of the Toy Stories, the Lotso, you know, the Lotso guy, kind of the Lotso person, kind of a big, jovial guy, but he's actually a bad guy. But anyways, he kind of had that little personality, a little larger, had that sound of voice, and he'd kind of listen to you. Well, he'd sit there, on the, he'd sit there in the driveway and listen to us when we'd visit or get witness to him. He'd just kind of blow you off a little bit, you know. And so... Um, but we'd pick up the boys, and, and uh, Mr. Rogers would most of the time. And, and so there was other times where Roland Rogers would invite, hey, why don't you come to church? And finally, he started coming. He, he didn't think it was that big of a deal. Finally, he started coming a little bit. I can't remember if he rode with Brother Rogers or not, but somehow he came, and he'd sit back there. And I remember he, I would be preaching, and he'd sit like this. He'd just be like, kind of like looking at me like, Phew. look at this young preacher. I mean, I'd be preaching stuff, and I'd get all intense, and he'd just be like, <laughs> like, whatever, just looking at me, just smiling, like I kind of entertained him, but it wasn't taken seriously. You know, like, I don't need this. But he came. He came a little bit here and there. And uh, in the meantime, Brother Roland Rogers, most of the time, was the one to witness to him on some visits here and there. And then finally, I mean, he, he's like, I don't really need this, you know, I'm okay, and but you know what? He got sick. And I, next thing I know, I'm tag-teaming, doing visits with him. Brother Rogers is visiting him sometimes. I'm visiting him sometimes in the hospital. And I remember, I, I, I'm not going to tell you what he had, but it was painful, some of the things he was dealing with. I remember going with one of my sons, visiting him in the Chandler Hospital. And um, he was in a lot of pain, and his eyes were wide open. And he's like, and he was open for prayer and open for this and all that. And I was glad to pray for him and listen to him and talk and, and everything like that. And, and somehow his health stabilized to a certain extent to where he was able to go across the street into the, like the, it's like a hospice or a little care recovery center right across the street there at Fry and Dobson. And he was in there. And I visited him in there and once Mr. Rogers visited him. Mr. Rogers talked to him uh several times, and one of the times he visited him and witnessed to him was before he was sick. One of his objections was, ah, I believe in evolution and, you know, being created uh, in that short of time and all this. And he basically, evolution hindered him from believing the gospel. And so Mr. Rogers would still show that, you know, we're sinners and we need to trust Jesus as our Savior and so on. And he's like, well, I believe in this evolution. Well, by the time he was sick, and even in this hospice place, on his back, Mr. Rogers witnessed to him again, and I did one time too, but the second time Mr. Rogers came back, the second visit there, he said, you know, what you said last time about God creating us and Jesus the Savior, yeah, he goes, I believe that now. I believe that now. And that was as close of a confession of faith as we got because Mr. Rogers never talked to him alive again. I got to visit him one more time, and he was in a different place. It was a very, it was a, it was a hospice. Then. It was like a, a large home that got converted to take care of people that are basically dying. And I remember going in there and, and hearing that he had made a profession of faith. And so I went in there, and I went into the room, and he was on his back, had stuff on him, on his mouth, and doing the, was it the death grovel, the death thing, 
And sure, that was the first time I ever heard that. I'm like, he is breathing really weird. It's basically the death grovel, I believe they call it. And I sat there, I talked to him. He couldn't hear it, probably didn't, I don't know. And I just prayed with him, and I was happy that I heard a profession of faith. And then I left, and uh, that was the last time he was, I saw him alive. I think it was that later that, that next day he died. But Brother Rogers and I were delighted with the, po- the likeliness, likelihood that he had accepted Christ because he had a change in his tone. Even Mr. Rogers said he had a change in his, his demeanor, even in his face on that next visit. It just something's different. Sometimes people don't think they need this or they need God or they need the gospel until something shows them they do. Did you know, like, if I really compare myself with God's law about lying, stealing, cheating, different things like that, I'm like, I'm in trouble with God. Well, you got a solution here, God? I've broken your law a lot. Yes, he says, Jesus is my solution. And so trusting Christ helps me see. But when I'm dealing with people, sometimes that's why, like, if I'm dealing with somebody and then I'm pushed away, I realize, you know what, somebody's not ready for help. Maybe I just don't let, let it bother me too much. So Moses, we see here, is this idea of people weren't ready for his help. Secondly, he, this is kind of a practical thing. What does he do? He removes himself from an unnecessary scenario of danger. It says in verse 15, Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. There's a very practical thing. Moses is trying to help. Of course, he, he probably shouldn't have killed this Egyptian. He intervenes, though, and then he intervenes with the Hebrews. He's getting rejected. Now the Pharaoh wants to kill him. So, you know, you know, it's just sometimes practical. If somebody's swinging a knife, just step back. You know, if somebody's trying coming around shooting gum, I kill, just, you know, it might be good to just step back. If somebody's got a big machete, you know, unless you've got some really cool karate moves, just back off there. You might have, God might have a purpose for you a little more, you know. And so he's like, you know, Pharaoh wants to kill me. The Hebrews are like, I might as well get out of here. Not doing any good here, right? Can we be practical about that? Listen, on a serious level, sometimes people are being abused and it's not changing. You might need to get away. Find somebody to help you in that scenario. You don't, you, God doesn't mean for you to be somebody's punching bag. So he removes himself from a scenario of unnecessary danger. Now, apostles and missionaries and different people were called, in a sense, to give the gospel in a scenario of danger. But if it's, a, if it's you know, an obvious thing where it's like, I don't have to be here for this moment, then step away. The next thing we see, and I hope everybody grasps this, because I want you to think about what it might feel like at this moment. The end of verse 15, and let's get, describe the moment again. Fair, Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh. He dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. This is probably several, I can't remember the miles, but you have Egypt, which is the northeast corner of Africa. He's literally on another continent, if I calculate it right. He's just on, just inside of Asia's south, kind of like uh, where you would come into Saudi Arabia, where it would be Midian. And he's gone. And he's gone. He's by himself. And he's been, he, he, he probably had never felt stuff like this before. I mean, again, grew up in the Egyptian culture. Next thing you know, a lot of negativity coming on him. And he's like, man, this does not feel good. Now, he could have at that point said, I'm not going to help anybody again. 
these girls coming to fill their water troughs and these shepherds going to push them away. <laughs> now you know how it feels. He could have been like that. But he doesn't. So here's the third point is we learn that he remains helpful to people. Even though he's rejected, get out, get out of here. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to turn off my helpfulness mentality. Look what happens. Again, he sits down by the well. So he's sitting there, and verse 16, the priest of Midian, this is his future father-in-law, had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their flock, father's flock. So you have these girls, these, all these ladies, they come in and all these sheep, meh, the sheep and everything, and there's a big well, and there's a way of pulling the water out of the well. It's probably hard. I don't know if they dipped or whatever. And they had these tr- troughs. It was like a little narrow canal. It could have been already in the, 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 the ground, or it could have been above the ground, like the wood ones that they make. You know, it's like a V-shaped tr- long trough. But there were several troughs. This is there above ground. Several troughs. And, and so these girls, man, you know, this dad put his girls to work, you know. Take care of the sheep, ladies. And so they're, they're pulling the water out, putting it in the troughs, filling the troughs <clears throat> so the sheep can come up because they can't get down there and drink. They have to put it where, it's, where they can drink it. And they come and they, they're drinking out of it. And they're filling the troughs, filling the troughs. That was a lot of work. Fill the troughs, fill the troughs, fill the troughs for a large flock of sheep until Moses is sitting there watching all this. And next thing you know, the big bad bully shepherds come. You know, and there's all these shepherds, they're coming. We're coming to water our flock too. And they just go, get out of here, get out, kicking sheep and pushing them, getting those girls out of the way, you ugly lady, and, or whatever. They're just pushing them away, driving them away. We're going to have, thanks for filling the troughs. <laughs> you know, and all the troughs are filled. And now they, these guys are thinking, we're going to have our sheep there. Did it have to work, guys? Isn't that cool? You know, these are like Midianite redneck guys coming in, bullying people, right? Okay. And then, and so they, and Moses is like, oh, it's time out, time out. And so Moses said, this is cool. I like this. This is the personality of Moses. You can't shake it off of him. This is what he does. I deliver. It's like it's natural. I'm going to come. No, not going to allow it. And he drives away not one shepherd, but the shepherds. Get out of here, guys. This isn't right. He's a law and order guy, right? This is a guy who got the law. He has a sense of justice. Sometimes go a little overboard. But he says, get out of here. And he drives them away and lets the girls, the ladies, finish with their sheep. They finish drinking. Look what it says there. The, the, it says, verse 17, the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. Now, the point is, is this is, we're naturally like if somebody is... Um, I've been hurt, I've been hurt, I've been hurt. I'm like, I'm never going to help anybody else again because it's too risky. Yeah. Right? He could be like, whatever. I kind of like watching violent movies. Let's see how this goes. You know, maybe he could have said that. <laughs> Those girls, they thought they had their water, but these guys went and took it over. He could have been very sadistic about it because of the, a disappointment in the past, because of a bitterness of, what he felt being rejected by Egypt and Hebrews, but he says he stay he that is set apparently set aside by his actions. He said, I'm still gonna be a helpful person. I'm gonna help people who might still reject me. He takes that risk. It's always a risk, isn't it? And he does. Versus begrudging. 
He helps courageously. It's one on several shepherds. He helps selflessly. He doesn't say, hey, girls, I got to... Any of you girls eligible? Yeah, okay, well, I'll help. Those stipulations. He helps without any stipulations. He helps them and leaves it alone. He doesn't follow them home. Look what... This is funny. I'd love to meet Rule. The girls are helped, verse uh, 18. So when they came to Rule, their father... So all the girls come home... And they come home and, and they, they had um, all the sheep and everything and they're all been watered and, and Rule says, how is it you're come so soon today? I would love to meet this guy. I kind of just see this personality coming out of here. You know? How is it do you hear today, ladies? How come so fast? And they said, this Egyptian guy delivered us out of the hand of the... So he looked Egyptian. Delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds who, drew, who also drew water enough for us and watered the flock. Wow! Why have you not invited him? Where is he? You know, he's kind of like, what did you do? We're people of hospitality. You know, that's what he's saying. It's some kind of Middle Eastern thing I'm messing up there. And uh, it says, he said to his daughters, where is he? Why did you not left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. I've been wanting an excuse to cook some of this meat up anyways. You know, maybe it's something like that. Go get him, ladies. And so they, eh. they bring him back. Next thing you know, he's marrying one of the girls, you know. But what I, and that's a beautiful story, and there's another angle, but I guess what I want to see is we have to resist, um, you know, when there's a disappointment to just totally shut down, right? Say, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be helpful to anybody anymore. We have to resist that and say, I'm still going to be helpful. Jesus was that for me and for you, Right? Jesus was in a palace, and he came out to view us, right? And when he did, he was rejected too, but he didn't say, I'm going back to my palace. Nope. He stayed here, and he endured affliction, suffering wrongfully for us, right? And he went to the cross. Even the close disciples were goofy and forsook him for a while, and, and his own countrymen crucified him. And Jesus remained a blessing even though we rejected him. And that's really what we need to learn. I'm still going to be a blessing to people. Maybe I can avoid the person that keeps being toxic, but I'm going to still be a blessing to others. I don't want to let that shut me down. That's what we learn about rejection. And we learn it here and we learn it in the life of, of Moses or in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the one who also came to the well for us and gives us ever you know Moses came in, oh let them drink no let them drink Jesus has come to earth for us to give us he is the water really drink of me and live forever lest we be parched and so how is it that you view uh, rejection in your life how is it that you're responding Let's respond the way God is showing us here that's beneficial according to His Word. Let's bow for prayer.